recently where I've been at in terms of thinking about where do I search for my father, it has to be in myself. I think that the more I get to know myself, the better I get to know him because yes, there are stories. Yes, there are photos, but ultimately the first nine years were spent with him. So whatever his sense of me clearly was embedded in my own understanding of myself. And thus that's where I seek information, not only about him, but about me. That's what connects us. He was able to mold my sense of self through his sense of self of me. Hello, and welcome back to Daddy Issues podcast with me and Harrod George Carey. Daddy Issues is a podcast exploring fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you think you have, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so very many of us, so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this conversation as one that needs to be recognised heard and confronted. If you like what you hear, please do feel free to rate, review and subscribe because I love hearing all your feedback, but more importantly, it gets to more ears and the more ears, the merrier. So thank you so much. I'm going to let you get on with the episode now and I hope you have a wonderful listen. In today's episode, I am speaking to Miranda Heyman. Miranda is an award-winning writer, director and producer based in Brooklyn, New York. They have developed work with the Roundabout Theatre Company, the Public Theatre, Manhattan Theatre Club, NYTW, New Georges and the Faultline Theatre, to name just a few. Miranda is interested in work that dismantles the antiquated ideology of the white, cis, male, able-bodied, middle-class individual as the stand-in for Universal. The theatre she seeks to make is a resistance. It disrupts the status quo of who and what is allowed in the theatre and incites audiences and her community to action. Her approach takes classical devised, adapted and new texts, incorporating technology, non-traditional casting, mixed media, dance and more in the pursuit of a unique interdisciplinary theatre. Her theatre is a radically inclusive, fundamentally multi-voiced, oriented towards sparking dialogue and in direct conversation with the current American state of affairs. Wow. Miranda, welcome to Daddy Issues and thank you for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. This is really exciting. You're my first New York podcastie. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Straight from the aeroplane. I love that. And even though we are not in Brooklyn, we yeah. are still in New York. I spend a lot of time up here, though. I spend a lot of time in Midtown. Oh, do because, you? I mean, because so much of theater is based in Midtown. Yes. You know? Yes. Like, I just went to my local Pret, was just at the office yep. <laughs> that I work out of. I don't really have an office, but yep. but roundabout, one of the big theater companies I work for, that is... You've worked for so many theater companies. I know. I mean, you're it, so young. Yes. Depressingly so. <laughs> it's true. Well, today I was just complaining about how, because I'm... Um, I'm doing um, interviews for a fellowship I help run. Mm -hmm. And now I was the second fellow and now we're choosing the fifth. So today I've been feeling particularly old, but it's just because yep. I was so young <laughs> when I started it and now I'm not that age anymore. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to take us back to your childhood, set the scene. Where did you grow up? What was your family dynamic? I grew up in Boston. Mm -hmm. And for those that know Boston, I grew up in Roslindale, um, which is an incredible neighborhood 
based in Boston proper. Um, it's near Jamaica Plain and West Roxbury. And Roslindale is a really, really diverse, multicultural, multifaceted mm -hmm. neighborhood. Um, I grew up going to mostly businesses owned by people who ran it, you know, family businesses. So I spent a lot of time going to local bookstores and the grocery store that is like close to where I grew up um, is still owned by this one family. So it's very neighborhoody, but mm -hmm. still wrapped up in everything that Boston is. Um, I grew up in a housing development um, just in Roslindale and um, the middle school, the elementary school that I went to, actually my entire family had gone to. Um, my mom gone, my dad, her, oh, wow. her siblings, his siblings, like, oh my so gosh. I was, you know, like it, this, this part of Boston, yeah. Roslindale, it's, it's Beach Street, shout out to Beach Street, <laughs> is very much my home. home and is, you know, my community mm. and my, I don't know, my village. Yeah. I really feel like I grew up in this village. Um, and growing up, actually, I didn't. My friends were so diverse and I really didn't know that I was actually like a minority in the grand scheme of the world until mm -hmm. I went to private school. Right. I went to private school and middle school. So much of my childhood was spent in this wonder and excitement of, you know, having like celebrating Chinese New Year and getting Dominican food for dinner and going mm -hmm. to um, my friend's house and, you know, learning about her already planning her bat mitzvah. Like I grew up in this very... Multicultural, yeah, multifaceted yeah. place. Oh, wow. yeah. It was really a utopia in that sense and very different than a lot of the experience of a lot of other people in Boston, especially black people. Do you remember the moment where you realized, oh, wow, this is an anomaly to have this? Yeah, so it's when I finally, so I went to school, I went to middle school in this town, or actually I think it's a city that's right outside of Boston called Brookline. Mm -hmm. And in Bro Brookline. Yeah, Brookline, Massachusetts. <laughs> um, and Brookline is a predominantly white, very Jewish city. Um, and when I went to middle school there for private school, that's when I realized, you know, and it was even in the process of applying mm. for private school, knowing, you know, my mom, um, I have a brother who's 10 years older than I am. Um, and he also went to private school. We did a similar enrichment program that launched us into the world of private school in Boston. Right. Um, and what, what's that? Sorry. A it's called Stepping Stone. Okay. So it's this enrichment program that yeah. takes like. I mean, inner city youth, like young right. black and brown folks um, yeah, yeah. who are excelling in school and, you know, have interest in going to private school and seeing what that is like. So my brother did the same program 10 years before I did. Mm. So we knew about private school and, you know, my brother had gone to one. He went to a day school um, called Nobles in Greeno and Dedham, mm -hmm. which is another prominently white neighborhood <laughs> outside of Boston, yeah. just outside of Boston. But um, anyway, you know, I'd known what private school was and I knew that when my brother went to his private school, I think he was one of three black kids yeah. in the whole grade. And of course, you know, 10 years, that was... There were there were certainly more marginalizations than there were when I attended, but I remember my mom saying, "So you're not going to go anywhere that has fewer than twenty percent students of color." Mm. And I said, "Oh, that seems like a small amount, especially when growing up, my best friends were Cuban, Chinese, Puerto Rican, white, black." Mm -hmm. So when I applied to private school and I left my little bubble of Beach Street, is when I realized, "Oh, I I am I'm a minority." in that sense of specifically race and ethnicity, right? Do you remember the feeling that you'd never had before then becoming something? Well, it was just, you know, I was already having to 
manage being the new kid. Mm. And most people have felt that, you know what it's like to be new in a space. So then I was already managing that sort of dynamic um, while also having to manage newness and like, oh, I, I did not know that people's houses were this big or this is how they celebrated or this is what they think about or this is where they shop. There was just so many. I was opened up to a new cultural capital mm. that I did not realize, that I didn't miss, right? That I wasn't, you know, longing for. I loved mm. my life growing up. I, ha I, I had an incredible childhood. I was so happy and free and creative and I felt open. I was very introverted growing up. Mm -hmm. So I will say that a lot of what I experienced internally was I, I was very internal and I cried all the time. I was super sensitive. Like, <laughs> I was crying constantly. <laughs> just like upset. I mean, I was also like afraid of lightning and, yeah, thunder, yeah. and fireworks. Beep. Like I was just like, a, like pretty much like a scaredy cat, but I loved my childhood. And I think, I mean, I think too, you know, transitioning into daddy issues. Mm -hmm. I think that also part of the internalness that I was feeling and the, and the newness and the, Oh, my experiences not like theirs or there's so many ways in which my experience is different than theirs was also the fact that my dad died in between third and fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And I had also gotten my period in the third grade. Right, quite young. Very young. Mm. So I was experiencing, you know, which is a term that your listeners can look up, this adultification, mm -hmm. which many black women experience, but I was experiencing this adultification of, you know, having my period, getting boobs, mm -hmm. becoming a woman in that sense, and also experiencing the death of my father. Mm -hmm. which I just, so I went to middle school. I went to this private middle school already having to catch up in terms of, not catch up, but in terms of expand the cultural capital that I was already learning while also mitigating, you know, now I can say this, but at the time I was like, yeah, I've seen shit. Like I've, I've been part of funeral planning, right? Like I've, I've, I've known what it's like to lose someone i've already spent a lot of time in hospitals i've already i've, I've seen so much of that mm -hmm. so i think a lot of my childhood was also spent you know it's so funny you said oh but you're so young but i've felt i've i have felt older and more mature and 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 be and i i had emotional depths that a lot of my peers did not have not only because of what my body was going through but also dealing with the death of my father yeah so you were nine. When I was nine. Died. Yes. Yeah. And tell us about how that happened. He got cancer. He had cancer. He had mm. lung cancer. And I'm not totally sure on how long the timeline of it. It I what it what it feels like to me now, many decades after, not many, two. <laughs> two <laughs> decades after. Which but if I mean that's a long twenty years is a long time. But yeah. you know, what it feels like now is it was very fast. Mm -hmm. It all, you know, the diagnosis to his death. How fast was it? Honestly, prob it feels under a year. Right. And that feels even generous. Like yeah, it yeah. could have been six months. It could have been eight. But, yeah, but yeah. it feels anywhere between six to 12 months where it all went down. And, you know, we don't know if he knew and was hiding it. I mean, the, there's so much to be said about black men's relationship to health and and um, transparency about their health and what's going on. Yes. And our own country's system and inability to be able to take care of black and brown folks adequately. So there's so much to be said about the system by which he was unable to speak about it or, mm -hmm. or also, the diagnosis. Also potentially being a man, like the sure. father, and having that thing of thinking, I'm the protector. Like I don't want to burden my family or my children and feeling like maybe you're a failure if you're the one who's weak. Yeah, and I'm unwell mm -hmm. and I'm, yeah, totally. Yeah. 
So I remember it all happening very fast. I remember my mom sitting me down and saying, you know, he has cancer. And I remember them, you know, doctor saying it's two weeks. I remember the chemo. I remember I have lots of images. I have very vivid images of, you know, the, the medical process. But what it felt like was very fast. It was very fast. And I remember as well, um, this is such a specific detail, but in the Boston public school system, there's a step, there's this thing called AWC or advanced work class. Mm -hmm. So when you're a good student from ages one or a good student in so far as testing proves and grades prove yeah. um, from grades one through three, you get invited to be part of this thing called AWC. So you get right. to do accelerated work in the fourth and fifth grade. You right. get to get ahead. So I remember again that feeling of like newness and I've seen shit so I was already becoming a, I went into the fourth grade having had such a crazy summer mm. period dad dying these were kids you know different kids from different schools came to my school for this AWC program and then that's why we were all together so it was a new, so I was in a basically I was in a completely new classroom with some folks from my from the third grade, but I was in a different classroom for fourth and fifth grade. Right. So fourth grade was just so new. So just to so you went to the private school for middle school. So what does that mean? I don't know. What does that mean when you were nine? Sorry. So timeline. <laughs> so, Let's get the timeline in order. Yeah, so yeah. from first to third. So I was in public school until yeah. the fifth grade. Okay. And then in the fourth and fifth grade, I was in this like special program yes. through the public school. Okay. Yes. Then in the sixth grade, I went to private school. Okay. And then I and I had a private education from and, sixth grade on. And that what sixth grade is that? That's middle school. Year seven. Year seven. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love so, this. <laughs> so you were still in public school when your dad died. That's right. Yes. Okay. But it was the same year that you also then became a woman yeah. in commas by getting your period. Yeah. Which is a and I had like a B cup. Yeah. Going into <laughs> and I'm very tall. I was very tall. So you obviously have a very vivid memory of that time to some respect. Totally. And I think probably heightened by the fact that you were introverted. So you were very thoughtful, very thinky. But then also this other big thing happening to you. Yeah. Another big moment. That's right. I mean, like I said, it was this adultification. It was yeah. this huge shift. It was just this huge emotional shift. And did you miss your, because it's such a daughter to mother cliche thing to think of how, you know, when a girl gets her period, you know, the mother or whatever is supposedly that person who then comes and tells them about that or guides them through. But do you remember at any point missing your dad during that moment, like wishing that he was there to maybe sort of be in this sort of womanly moment that you just experienced? That's interesting. I, I've never thought of that, but I don't, I don't remember that. I just remember feeling the loss of, I, it, there was so much loss of mm. this innocence. And I think that's why I keep saying newness because mm. it was just this, in, I, it was, I was just catapulted into this new phase of my adolescence at age nine. Yeah, and you remember feeling that. You remember yeah. feeling like, I'm different now because yes I, yeah exactly I was like I am different now I have a period <laughs> my dad died I have boobs yeah I'm emotionally like I remember being like I feel different which is probably why introversion was so beneficial to me at that time because I was very much with my thoughts I was a big reader and a huge writer mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. constantly reading and writing I mean I think during one summer vacation I read one book every day and so what happened God, I wish I was like you when I was nine. <laughs> I was wasting so much time. 
between trees, actually, so that's fine. But do you remember the the initial loss? It's amazing that you have such a vivid memory of this time, which is why I want to sort of really dig in there and how that felt as a nine-year-old. Did you quite realise what you'd lost and did you realise the feelings that came initially after that? No, because I think that, you know, I think that when we're, I'm, I was very precocious. Mm. <laughs> and I think that I was aware of loss and you know, you will not see this person. Like this person is gone forever. But I only think that in recent years, I've been able to develop language surrounding what that has meant because mm. so much time has passed. Completely. And I'm able to track because I had such a vivid, because I have such vivid memories and because I was so, and still am, you know, I, now I identify as an extrovert, but I'm still incredibly mm. internal. I mm -hmm. spend a lot of time with my thoughts. Yeah. A ton of time. Yeah. Like parsing them out. Is it a sort of torturous amount of time or is it a sort of, are you, are you, do you like it? Do you sort well, of my therapist it? says that as long as it serves me, mm. then I'm I'll, good. But so it probably is a torturous amount of time, but I enjoy, I enjoy the time spent talking to myself. It's also clearly how you work. That's yes. how you've worked since you were young. Yes. When you were a child. Like talking to myself yeah. and being with myself and yeah. being with my thoughts. Yeah. So I think that only now am I able to say, oh, I had to leave so much behind at age nine, but I don't think I would have said that then. I just said, oh, I'm different. And I am, I'm, I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm different. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm beyond. Not to mention, you know, that I was, I, 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 I was precocious. So I was already very smart and I was reading at a much higher level. Like I, I just been like, I'm, I'm ahead and mm. it doesn't feel nice. How do you think it changed you? I think that I just began to, well, changed me. I think that the way I internalized it was the sense of curiosity about ephemerality, mm -hmm. which again, I can only now speak to. I think that it's not a surprise that I have a career in theater Mm -hmm. because theater is all about dying. Every single night, the show <laughs> dies. Oh, I see, yes. <gasps> Every single night, the event dies because mm -hmm. there is no way in which those people and those space at that period will be happening again. And then we do it again the next day. And then we do it again the next day. Mm. And then there's closing. So it and comes, the whole back thing to comes back to life. That's right. It comes back to life, but then eventually it will die. Mm. The live performance is constant death. You're the director and the writer at times. You're, you're the one who brings it back to life. That's right. You and I'm also generating something that I know yeah. will eventually be put to rest. You're like in control of it. That's right. Which is not what you had with your dad's cancer. Well, to be honest, I'm not in control of it. I actually feel very, I, I, I'm not responsible in the way that death works. I'm not responsible for what is left behind. Mm -hmm. I'm only responsible for the event taking place. So just in the same way as you know, I look inward to see what my dad has left behind in me in terms of values and sense of self. And I, I, I also look to theater for that same reason. I also was an athlete for most of my life before I started. So now we're in the teenage years. So mm -hmm, then I, mm -hmm. I think that part of how I reconnected to my body and the loss that I had felt and the emptiness that I felt and also the strangeness of putting on a pad at age nine was to do sports. I became obsessed with the power mm -hmm. of my body. Wow. 
I became so, and I was a very good athlete. Mm -hmm. I was a very, very capable athlete. I played four sports. Mm -hmm. So no breaks in the summers I played right. tennis. In fall, I did field hockey, winter basketball. In the spring, I ran track. So I think that, again, you know, <laughs> sporting events as well and athletics are also this constant degeneration and generation. Mm -hmm. We break our muscles. They, they, they go. They die. They yeah. rebuild. They come back. It's this constant. It's also just fascinating that that's where you're, where that's what you think about in terms of with sport and with theater. Yes. Because I think now you spell it out, it makes total sense. But so many people will have been or are very good athletes, but won't have thought of it like that. Like it's fascinating how you've thought of it like that. Yeah. So I think that the way I change is that I'm obsessed with death. Mm. I'm obsessed with it insofar as, you know, anxiety pushes me to be constantly thinking about it and constantly considering it. But also it's the winter. So I think winter... That's everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think that I have an obsession with things that end mm -hmm. and things that only take place once and then we move on. Yeah. I've, I've been practicing that for a long time and it's been part of my existence for a long time. Yeah. I love being the new kid. I love... Yes. I remember in high school saying, I remember in high school saying, oh, I don't want to stay. I went to boarding school for high school. Mm -hmm. I remember part of it was, oh, I need to let this part, I need to move on from this part. I want to see what else there is. Mm -hmm. So I think that I've become, I've, I've embraced that sort of newness and that sort of longing and that chasing something that will eventually go away. Mm -hmm. I've, I've sort of reinvented that loss to actually be where I find meaning. Can you elaborate slightly on that? Well, I'm just, now I'm just thinking about it. I, I feel that, so I'm saying, right now I'm saying, oh, I love, I'm obsessed with ephemerality. So the notion of like temporality, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was nine, what I felt, what, what I identified as just a loss and an emptiness and like a, oh, this has passed. This is already done. We're closed on that chapter of my early childhood of, you know, not understanding death, all like all of that stuff I closed earlier. Now I'm actually using it to seek more meaning out of what I choose to do for work, the relationships I choose to have, the situations I choose to put myself into. Mm -hmm. um, recently, I told my friend, who's another artist, I said, oh, I realize why I'm bored. It's because I'm no longer the fool mm -hmm. and I seek places where I actually don't, where I don't know what's going on. Do you like that challenge? Yes, I'm mm -hmm. actually actively searching for places where I'm like, oh, I'm missing something. I feel a loss. Like there is something I don't know. There okay. is an unknown. And I, I really gravitate towards that. Yeah. And do you think that's a healthy place for you to be in when you're in that place? Does that make sense? Or is it you seeking that same feeling of trauma that you can relate to? Hmm. It feels healthy because so much of it is creative energy. Mm -hmm. And it drives you. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it also keeps me on my toes. It keeps me not complacent. And so not bored. And not bored. I love trying new things. Mm -hmm. I love, like I said, I love being a novice. I love saying, well, I'm done with that. Mm -hmm. So what else can I 
learn or do? What else can I like put to rest? Mm-hmm. And going back to what you mentioned earlier, you mentioned what your dad, the values that he left in you and the sense of self. What did you mean by that? I think that because my dad is dead and has been dead for far more time than I have been a lot in my life, he has been dead much longer, much longer. Yeah. yeah. Two decades longer. Yes. Yeah. That my grief had to start to manifest in a different way. Mm-hmm. I had to start understanding loss in a different way because you were different and I was different yeah. and the loss felt different. You yeah, know, whatever totally. I was dealing with when I was nine to 15 is totally different than what I'm dealing with Completely. now. Yeah. Not just because the world is different, but also because my under the, 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 that event you what I'm, that I'm talking about with theater and sports, that event has now been so, it was so long ago. Mm-hmm. So I have to start, I have to keep generating new notions and new ideas about the event because mm-hmm. it's going to keep changing. So I think that recently where I've been at in terms of thinking about where do I search for my father, it has to be in myself. Mm-hmm. I think that the more I get to know myself, the better I get to know him. Yeah. Because yes, there are stories, yes, there are photos, but ultimately the can I, I discover more about him as I discover more about myself, not just because it's anything biological, but because I di- the first nine years were spent with him. So the foundation by which I be my you're <laughs> the people around you have a sense of you as a self before you have a sense of you as a self. Mm-hmm. Right? Completely. So whatever his sense of me clearly was embedded in my own understanding of myself. Yeah. And thus, that's where I seek information. Yeah. Not only about him, but about me. Because yes. that's what connects us. Completely. Not just that he gave me life, mm-hmm. but that he was able to mold my sense of self through his sense of self of me. Yeah. That's so interesting. <laughs> I love that. It just, but to me, it. <laughs> but it makes so much sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's that thing where, I, I mean, I even think now we're kind of, we're still products of, you know, people that we've been around and our experiences and our and our families, our parents' narrative and our nar- and that's then become our narrative. And that's determined so much about how you see yourself and how you see the world. Yes. Like two people can see the world so differently because they just have had a different experience. And it is that thing of you get told who you are continuously throughout your life. Like not in a malicious way, but you're constantly told, oh, you're good at this mm-hmm. or you look like this or... You um, you are capable of this or you should or, have this kind of job. Yes, or, or you are not capable of this or etc. And you're constantly given these sort of different identities. And then I think it's in your 20s, which you're just about in and I'm just about in, where you start challenging, I think, those things that people have put on you. And spending time with them and saying, well, what is helpful and what is mm, not. Exactly. Yes. Yes, because so much of yes, what I seek out when I seek out information about my father, it is in those who knew him. Yes. It is in my brother, my mom, his siblings. Every, you know, since I grew up in this housing development where everybody knew each other, mm. everyone knows my dad. Mm-hmm. They all they, they all grew up together. Yeah. 
But it's so, in- sorry, I'm just going back. It's so mm-hmm. interesting what you just said because I can't summarize it because it's something bigger than that, if that makes sense. But I've been doing therapy for the last year. I mean, that's why I sort of started the podcast because I realized how incredibly like amazing speaking was and powerful and empowering, blah, blah, blah. But I said to my therapist pretty recently, I was like, I feel really, really, really close with my dad. I feel really close with him at the moment. Like, I feel like I'm his daughter. It's the first time in my life that I don't just feel like he's this, like, stranger who other people tell me about. That's right. And I think that's because for the last year, I've been getting to know myself. Exactly. And I've been getting, I've been taking away all these layers and manifestations of traumas or manifestations of other people telling me who I am or am not. And I think it's, exactly what you're saying that's exactly it yeah i had to so while that information is helpful i love knowing that my dad could build um you know like put together like ikea furniture without Mm -hmm. instructions because Mm -hmm. i can too but yeah like those sort of weird idiosyncrasies idiosyncrasies i love Mm -hmm. you know my mom is always like oh my god i can't believe how good of a cook you are like your dad was also an amazing cook like those things yeah those are anchors but ultimately what I'm, what, how, how my grief has changed now is that I'm looking inward to myself mm-hmm. and drawing my own lines and my own paths because I own those. Yeah. And yes, they are inspired by those stories and by those direct connections, but I have to have a sense of ownership between my relationship with him mm-hmm. and me. Mm-hmm. And that starts with me. Yeah. Not just because he's dead, because yes. as we learn ourselves better, we learn our influences and we see better mm-hmm. the makeup of our germination, really. Yeah. And what was your dad? So he was a good chef. He's he, a good chef. He was he was good at building stuff. Very good at building stuff. Well, both my parents are carpenters. I do think that I do think that both of my parents being carpenters meant that neither of them sat at desk mm-hmm. for work, mm-hmm. which became very important for me. Yeah. Um, even though I just said, you know, I was at my desk, like I actually was at sitting on a couch <laughs> next to a yeah. bunch of desks. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that. I mean, I do think that I love working with my hands, um, which makes total sense that both my parents are carpenters and I love working with my hands. Um, my dad was an amazing fisherman mm-hmm. and just had this like innate like ability to just be like both docile but strategic, mm-hmm. which fishing totally is. Yep. It's like the absolute <laughs> yeah. amount of patience oh and then like God. striking at the, like it's all timing. Yeah, and like how you don't switch off. Exactly. You can't, you're not, you can't. Exactly. Yeah. But like you're still like, it's it's so, precise. such a precise and strategic skill. And mm. I feel like that is exactly how I, direct just like precision but also patience Mm -hmm. and diligence and then like giving the note exactly when an actor needs it or you know yeah having a shift in the tension exactly when the plane needs it so i feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of those analytical um manifestations are really present in me and also um my dad just had like hundreds of ideas constantly he was just like a total entrepreneur in that sense do you remember that yeah i do i remember that he was trying to develop so many things like like true like i don't know like like tommy pickles dad inventor kind of stuff like which is a rugrats (laughs) reference um the best show ever um but you know like a total inventor in that sense and i feel similarly i always have ideas i'm i'm just constantly like oh this would be a great product Mm. to develop or this or this or you know this play like i'm 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 just i just have so much creative energy a director is kind of an inventor yeah, as is a writer, you're inventing a, a world. Totally. A fantasy. So that kind of inventing, mm. I also feel very 
connected to. Connected to. And I mean, also, my dad's birthday is a week before mine. Oh, is it? Yeah. Exactly. So you share the same star sign? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we are that? both Virgos. Virgo, nice. And that is very, very accurate in our family dynamic. Like yeah. my mom dealing with two Virgos, my dad and me for her whole life is just like, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, makes a ton of sense. So we also, you know, yeah. I, I, I very much love, I love the fact that my dad is also a Virgo. Yeah. That really, really in a weird way, like helps like anchor me knowing that we also share yeah, yeah. this astrological <laughs> time. Connection. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously the term daddy issues, is tend to be thrown around on women in terms of like how they then deal with men in relationships or, you know, that's the, that's the cliche sort of totally. look at it. How do you think growing up without your dad has affected your relationships? I mean, <laughs> it's so funny because, <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I, I'm, I identify as queer, mm -hmm. so I have romantic and sexual and physical relationships with people of all genders. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the best part about having daddy issues mm -hmm. and being queer is that sometimes I'm with a partner who is does not identify as a man. Mm -hmm. And I see, you know, that classic seeing some of the things I've admired most about my partners have actually been qualities that I admire in my dad and in myself. Mm -hmm. So that's when it's really, honestly, kind of thrilling. Yes. I actually really want to delve into this because I remember us having brief chats about it on the phone. Well, you know, because you think about like, you know, me as a theater person, I think about the Oedipal complex mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. You know, the notion of like, all men want to be able to like kill their father and sleep with their mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> It basically, you know, it that in its base, most basic form. Yeah. Right. The story of Oedipus. Oedipus. And the Oedipus yep. Exactly. Yep. And the, in that complex. So it's really funny for me if I were to be so bold and to consider myself Oedipus in this situation mm -hmm. being like, oh, but my partner could be like, it, it, it just it just makes for there's just this like inherent queering mm -hmm. of the Oedipal complex that I as a queer person am fortunate enough to bask in. Yeah. So it just makes my notion of daddy issues go beyond like maleness and actually relationship and partnership. And sort of just personhood. Yeah. I was about to say personness. Yes. I was like, is that a word? <laughs> Probably yeah, it not. becomes this personhood. Yes. And that's interesting because then, because you know the sort of classic symptoms in inverted colors of having daddy issues in its cliched societal meaning. What you're saying is that it doesn't, it's not necessarily with a man. It's just like right. It's that. not gender it's specific exactly at like, all. Yes, yeah. And that's what's fun yeah. about having. That's what I'm saying. Like that's like yeah. the stupid dead dad joke I'm trying to make. Yeah, is that yeah, it's yeah. Like oh, it's more fun because like I could find my dad in like all kinds of people. Yeah, yeah. Or like I could have daddy issues with all kinds of partners. Yeah. And it's not, which also makes it, I don't want to say scarier, but just like more, <laughs> more volatile because it's not about my relationship with men. It's about my relationship to like people who I welcome in my life and knowing that one day I'm going to die and they're going to die. Yeah. Like it is actually more about loss to yes. me in yes. that sense. Yeah. And with the people that you have relationships with, do you notice a pattern of, for example, going for people who 
do treat you a certain way or um, I mean this is so funny because this has been like my I've been literally talking about my pattern non-stop not just because I'm obsessed with the app the pattern oh my god I'm obsessed and it's always reading me it's life-changing actually I sometimes I open it and I'm just like they are actually listening to every single conversation oh god, I've ever had it's fucking weird it's so fucking weird I feel that what I but I don't know you know I mean like we're all such intersectional people myself especially i identify as such so you know like could be daddy issues could be my blackness could Mm. be the fact that i have a vagina like could be like it could be all sorts of stuff so i don't really feel like i've identified a specific pattern in relation to daddy issues but i do know that what i always keep in mind what what i always have to um what I have to be mindful of myself in relationships is, you know, don't be afraid of the law. Lo- like, don't let the fear of the loss, mm-hmm. the eventual loss, like prevent like happiness now. Mm-hmm. I think that's like a lot of what I face is I'm like, well, like I'm going to lose them eventually. So what does that mean for right now? Do you have that feeling? I'm going to lose oh, them constantly. Eventually. Yeah. But I have, but that's what I'm saying. You know, like I have that with everything. With everything. That is my, that is, that is the work I make. That mm-hmm. is how I, that's how I consider theater. That's how I consider the event. You know, the event takes place and then it's gone. Yeah. Like that's, that is so my attraction to, that has been my pattern by which I move through the world and I've been able to manifest it into something that is um, a career, but I have to be careful or I'm learning that I have to be careful of, you know, like both not being afraid to let go, mm-hmm. not being afraid to let go and like, you know, go separate ways because I'm so afraid of losing and never getting back, mm-hmm. but also not being afraid of when I'm in something that, you know, is happy and good and healthy and consensual at the time being like, well, this is just going to end like that, that obsession with like, the end death. of it. Yeah, the death. <laughs> the death. The, the, the death. The and death. also the pain that comes from it. Even exactly. if it's a fling, it's so painful. Exactly. So I feel like sometimes, I think that sometimes I grieve mm. before the event has even taken place. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting. Well, I, you, fear the, you fear the grief? No, I just grieve oh, before mm. other people. <laughs> I can give you an example. At my college graduation, I, I was so unbothered throughout my entire, like the entire month leading up. Like everyone, you know, was like feeling things and mm. sad and like, oh my God, it's over. And I was just like, I'm good. Yeah. And then I real, I was like, why am I so unbothered by this? Like, you know, death of adolescence, you know, that's how everyone talks about college. It's like, no, like now we have to go into the real world, like blah, mm. blah, blah. And I was like, why am I so unbothered? And then I remember I was like, oh, it's because I have grieved this loss way back in like January (laughs) like in January and February before the May graduation date I had already started Mm -hmm. you know being sad and 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 feeling that loss so that way I was already ahead of it Mm -hmm. and that's a way in which I protected myself how do you know that you grieved it in January do you as in well I was thinking about it you know the summer after I was like why was I so you know I was reflecting on my year and I was like why was I so unbothered about oh I see yeah, yeah 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 and I was like oh I think I just grieved it I just I spent time grieving before anybody else did it's quite practical that it's like your brain telling you do it before exactly get it out the way exactly <laughs> they're like just get it out the way and yeah. then we'll have to do it when everyone else is or you know you'll have already you have already prepared yeah it's very Virgo 
is it? <laughs> yeah, to be preparing for situations and things that haven't even happened. Planning ahead. But when you have a dead dad, that's like yeah. terrifying. The, the ramifications of that are terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, constantly planning for things that have not happened yet. Right. Quite practical though. Good, good sort of career Sure. Good for yes. the career, yes. not, not for the relationship. Exactly. So then that's where I have to, that's when I have to be careful and remember, yeah. oh, I don't have to grieve. I You can't prepare for everything. No. I think that's the way in which I can identify, you know, my dad dying, which did feel so fast and was mm -hmm. truly a shock and I couldn't plan for it. Mm -hmm. Remembering I can't plan yeah. for grief. Where do you think you're at with it now? I mean, this is so funny. I know I can't, I can't even do math. Like I can't even remember how many years. Yeah. I think recently it was like 15 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like sometime in the recent past, it was 15 years. And that's when I said, wow, my grief is a teenager. Mm -hmm. And just putting a limit, like putting, you know, my grief is in high school. So I think that what became kind of fun for me and fun for other people who have dead dads was being like, okay, my grief is in high school. What should a high schooler be doing? Mm -hmm. Like at this moment in a high schooler's life, like at this moment in an adolescent's life, like what would they be doing? And I said, well, they're going to start reinventing everything that they know to be true. They're going to be met with new understandings of adolescence. They're going to be growing up. They're going to, you know, they're going to be moving on. They're going to be moving on to the next phase. So for some reason, the 15 year mark became, okay, well, my grief has to grow up. My grief is like about to go to college in four years and I want her to be ready. Yeah. And it became this. Sort I love of, you personifying. Yeah, it. I was like, she has to be ready. She yeah. has to be able to have the conversations she needs to have with herself in order to actually grow up. Mm. She's gonna be twenty one soon. She's gonna be. <laughs> yeah. Got a, she. It's a sweet sixteen. Like those mm. sorts of things became really important to me. So I wanted to be able to have a dialogue with my grief. I said. Just like I have dialogues with my anxiety, just like I have dialogues with my ego, mm -hmm. I really wanted to make sure that I'm caring for my grief in the next stage of her life. Mm -hmm. So I think that was really the shift. And it became this sort of reflecting on my own self in high school and what was so valuable for me and what has been valuable in my adolescence and in my adulthood and wanting to do the same for my grief, especially because my grief so clearly has a birthday and it was the day my dad died that's an amazing way to think about grief seeing it as having its own milestones and having its own sort of it's separate to you which is probably a very healthy way to see it because grief is so all-consuming totally and you can be completely lost in it but then having that thing of just being like okay you're at this stage right now and so you're teething and you're angry exactly. and you're stressed. Exactly. And then you're going to get to a stage. Yeah, it's that's fascinating. You're going to be, yeah, right? But that yeah. makes total sense. You know, when your grief is five, yeah. it's still like pretty young. Yeah. And it's it's vulnerable and it's immature and it's exactly. confused. Exactly. And it's naive. And then it gets older and older and older. And in a way, I think the older it gets, I think when it hits, maybe sort of as you, same for you, 15 teens to early 20s much like real life that's right it's the hardest yeah it really is at least that's my experience of it and that sounds like it was similar to you for yours and it has to grow up it has to move into a new phase yeah it has to and it, you know that 
I don't know if you feel this, but I already know whenever other sort of big moments happen in my life or if I get to a different stage of, for example, being in my 30s and then, you know, each decade, I think, represents mm. a different stage of your life. I'm ready to know that my grief could come back, that that it could come back in a different shape. Because like right now, I've got a great relationship with it, but grief doesn't leave. It like stays with you forever. That's right. It's always there. So that's why I, if it's helpful for me to be in dialogue with my grief, so mm. that way I can say, hey, grief, girl, Yeah, I know today is going to be a hard day. Yeah. But like we can hold hands and we can walk in it together. Mm. Like I said, it's the same conversations that I've been having with, my imposter syndrome and anxiety and all the other things with my career. It's all the other conversations I've been having, which is why I think that I value again, you know, now full, full circle. I value the time spent talking to myself because I'm able to personify my emotions and the things that are, you know, pressing mm -hmm. on my brain and say, you know what? I get that. Mm. Like I was, I can use my own. I'm cause I'm older than all of these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm older than my anxiety. I'm older than my ego. Again, going back to that notion of, you don't have, you don't, when you identify yourself as a self, that's much later. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm more mature than all of these elements of myself. So I can only speak to them in what I spoke to myself as during yeah. that time, yeah. which was, yeah, 15 is a hard year mm -hmm. or these are hard days. Mm. It's actually quite nice having like, what well, I can't do math, 15 plus nine. 24 year old giving a 15 year old some advice that's right. but that's what it feels like to me yeah so i'm able to say in my own age yes i will talk to 10 year old anxiety or whatever yeah and speaking of for example your anxiety and imposter syndrome slightly different because i think that's the sort of universal female thing predominant maybe yeah but to me they're all the same yeah to yeah me, it's all a semblance of am i the self that other people see me as yeah that's the root of yeah, and, uh, yeah, my yeah. entire <laughs> existence. Everything. Everything. Am I the person that people see me as? And I have to say no. Mm. I am not. I am not that. No one is. I don't think because there's this amazing book I read called um, "The Performance of Self in Everyday Life," mm -hmm. and there is no true self. The closest you get to your true self is sitting in a room alone. But that's even still a manifestation of that's right yeah of the influences of that day and of that time mm -hmm. so then i say okay so what do i do with my notion of self and again I, I have to look inward yeah i have to look into what i know and i don't know and and the memory of my dad and 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 the what i am left with of him in myself and you know in the stories becomes where i look towards myself so that way even if the projections of who I am are, feel skewed or not right or ahead or behind, I know that I'm spending time with this person and with these elements of myself. Mm -hmm. If your dad was listening to this podcast right now, what would you want to say to him? I feel like everything I've said, I feel like I just like had the opportunity to, you know, like write a little note to my dad and say, yeah, this is what I'm thinking about. This is where you're at with me. This is where I'm at with you. And like, let's just keep moving forward in the ways we know how and with the tools we know how. So I actually feel like I kind of just did that. And I kind of just penned a little note to him in my way. Mm. 
Oh, thank you so much, Miranda. This has been amazing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with the incredible Miranda Heyman. They are just the most beautifully minded individual and how they've perceived and acknowledged and read and lived and understood their grief, I think is just an incredibly eye-opening, heart-opening, mind-opening perspective that I definitely learned a lot from at the time. And then again, editing this episode months and months later, we recorded this episode in, I believe, January or was it February earlier this year? before 2020 got cancelled and um, I'm now only just releasing it so I'd forgotten a lot of what we spoke about and what an absolute joy to have been able to have gone back and reheard and re-listened and relearnt and rethought about everything that Miranda had said so thank you Miranda I'm so excited and so happy that finally this episode is out there in the ether If you've been affected at all by anything that's come up in the episode, I advise two places where you can visit. The first is Julia Samuel's website, www.juliasamuel.co.uk. The other place is www.untangle.life, which is for people experiencing grief. I'd love to thank Warren Borg at Wargy Productions for doing all the mastering and compressing and Julietta for providing Daddy Issues podcast season 2 music which I am obsessed with. Lastly I'd love to thank all of you for listening and also staying on this long to listen to the rest of the outro as without you of course there would be no podcast so thank you so much and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or night. <laughs> <laughs>